Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. What happens if President Trump refuses to accept defeat if he loses in November? That's the question constitutional law expert Lawrence Douglas asks in his new book, Will He Go? President Trump and the looming election meltdown in 2020. Of greatest concern for Professor Douglas is a close or contested result of the vote. And if Trump doesn't concede, Professor Douglas writes, our government system is headed toward a Chernobyl-like meltdown. Coming up, Lawrence Douglas joins us to discuss his fears for this November and how a refusal by Trump to accept defeat could threaten American democracy. Join us after this news. Welcome to this morning's forum. I'm Michael Krasny. In a recent interview, Fox News host Chris Wallace asked President Donald Trump if he'd accept the November 3rd election results. I think mail-in voting is is going to rig the election. I really do. Uh, Are you suggesting that you might not accept the results of the election? I I have to see. That hedge is exactly what constitutional law expert Lawrence Douglas is worried about. In his new book, Will He Go? President Trump and the Looming Election Meltdown in 2020, Professor Douglas explains why he's concerned about a close or contested election and the potential consequences if President Trump rejects electoral defeat. Welcome to Forum, Lawrence Douglas. Good to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be with you, Michael. Well, thank you for that, and thank you for being with us, and uh, congratulations on your book. I want to get right to it here. How much is this looming over us in the sense that uh, I think you're on record as saying the president has pretty much telegraphed uh, what he is willing or not willing to do in the face of defeat? Yeah, I think we heard it again in his response to Chris Wallace, which uh, eerily echoed precisely the same response that he gave to Chris Wallace uh, in the final presidential debate in 2016. As you recall, you know, in that debate against Hillary Clinton, Chris Wallace asked him a very similar question. Would he be would he be willing to abide by an electoral defeat? And he again said, you know, I'll keep you in suspense. And uh, it's almost as if he's created a situation, a kind of... Um, heads I win, tails you lose situation in which the only way that our electoral system can demonstrate its legitimacy is if he wins. And if he loses, that becomes um, proof of everything that he's been saying, that the system's rigged and uh, corrupt. Well, even when he won against uh, Senator Clinton, he said that things were rigged and there was a voter fraudulent vote, which was never really proved or in any way corroborated. But The worst case scenario, and you have some pretty catastrophic scenarios here, would be a close vote, right? 
Yes, exactly. And I think uh, by, of course, a close vote, I mean, we have this um, rather anachronistic and arguably somewhat dysfunctional uh, system for electing the president. So by close vote, uh, we're not talking about a close vote in the popular vote, as you just alluded to. Um, he lost to Hillary Clinton by three million votes. Again, at that time, he insisted that that loss was really the product of three to five million phantom illegal voters, the existence of which was never proven. Uh, but by close vote, I mean uh, not in the popular vote, but in the Electoral College, and even not so much in the Electoral College alone, but also uh, a close vote in the key swing states. And these key swing states are liable to be the same uh, states that were in play in 2016, uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, arguably North Carolina, and perhaps a couple of others. You make the argument, though, that the Electoral College invites abuse, uh, and the Constitution really doesn't secure what we could call a peaceful transition to power. In fact, it just presupposes it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, uh, and by presupposing it, I mean, you know, it, it's a kind of a typical feature of legal systems. I mean, any kind of institutional framework uh, sort of presupposes the good faith actions on the part of the people who are inhabiting positions of authority within those institutions. And uh, no institution can, in a sense, uh, secure itself against people who are unwilling to abide by the rules of the game. And uh, it's the same thing with our system of federal and constitutional law, that obviously there's a certain amount of um, sanctions that, back, are backed up, uh, that law is backed up with sanctions if you break it. But in terms of the larger you know, edifice of constitutional law, it really kind of presupposes that our officials and lawmakers um, sign on to the norms of that system. And what we've seen throughout Trump's uh, presidency is first a willingness to kind of smash through those norms and to ignore them. And secondly, which is no less disturbing, is that he's not really had to pay the political price one would have expected for such a defiance of the basic norms of constitutional governance. And actually, if we look back historically for a moment, and let's do that, Professor Douglas, uh, uh, we have the Tilden-Hayes uh, election of 1876 and of course Gore versus Bush, uh, but in both cases there was a concession by, uh, well, Tilden and by eventually Al Gore. Uh, so it means, in effect, we're dependent on norms, uh, perhaps maybe even more than the Constitution or the laws or the institutions? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Michael, because, I mean, let, let's look back, I think, you know, something that probably in the recent memory of at least some of your um, listeners is the, 20 elect, uh, the 2000 election uh, between George W. Bush and, and Al Gore. And I think a lot of people recall it was contested. And some people, I think, uh, believe that it was the Supreme Court that ultimately brought closure to that election. And even if people think that the court's ruling was partisan uh, or if that it was kind of poorly reasoned, they nevertheless think, look, this electoral dispute, it couldn't just carry on. Uh, it was gonna hurt the country. So it was necessary to get some closure. But I actually think it, it's wrong to credit the Supreme Court with providing closure. It really was provided by Al Gore, who on the day after the Supreme Court uh, delivered its very controversial uh, opinion, uh, Gore rather gracefully uh, conceded. And he basically put the political interests of the country ahead of his own political uh, fortunes. And uh, I think, you know, whatever we know about Donald Trump, it's impossible to imagine him acting likewise. 
uh, if you slotted Donald Trump into the 2000 election, putting him in the place of Al Gore, we really could have seen a very dramatic electoral meltdown. Talking about the possibility of President Trump rejecting electoral defeat in 2020 with Professor Lawrence Douglas. He's professor of law at Amherst College and author of Will He Go? President Trump and the looming election meltdown in 2020. And it is a metaphor that's appropriate with a meltdown. You talk about Chernobyl, in fact. And let's just talk about one of these scenarios that you present to us where you could actually have two different presidents because the governors actually have the prerogative of exercising an electoral decision. And you could have, uh, as you painted for us, uh, Chief Justice Roberts uh, swearing in uh, or being sworn in by Nancy Pelosi because the 1947 Presidential Succession Act would allow her to take over that office as acting president. And Clarence Thomas uh, swearing in uh, President Trump. Uh, You have competing electoral certificates or perhaps no one being sworn in. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it gets a little bit... uh granular into the peculiarities of our electoral system. But, um, uh, you know, as, as I think most of your listeners are well aware, uh, whoever wins the popular vote in a state uh, wins all the electoral college votes of that state. And it doesn't matter if you win the popular vote by one vote or if you win it by uh, several million votes, like uh, Hillary Clinton won in California in uh, 2016. Um, you still get all the electoral college votes. And the kind of scenarios in which things could really go sideways uh, come this fall is situations in which in our swing states of, again, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, in which you have a very tight outcome. And the tight outcome, uh, it's not unlikely that we could imagine it uh, playing out in the following way, that on November 3rd, uh, imagine that Trump has a slim lead in these swing states. Now, one of the reasons he could have a swing, uh, he could have a narrow lead in these swing states on November 3rd is because hundreds of thousands, arguably millions of mail-in ballots will not have been counted yet. And so as those mail-in ballots are then counted in the days or even the weeks after uh, America goes to the polls on November 3rd, uh, his slim lead vanishes and it now looks like Biden has carried those states. Now, what becomes a really dangerous situation, and it's exactly as you alluded to, Michael, is you could imagine Republican lawmakers who, after all, control the legislatures in these swing states, actually uh, siding with Trump and saying that, uh, no, these uh, mail-in ballots have been affected by fraud. We're not going to count them. We're going to go with the November 3rd result, which has him leading narrowly. The same swing states actually have Democratic governors. And you could imagine the Democratic governors saying, no way that we're going to do that. Uh, we're going to count uh, the full state canvas that wasn't completed until weeks later. Uh, and we're going to recognize Biden as having won the state. And as a result of that, you could have, as you were alluding to, you could have these competing electoral certificates wind up in Congress's lap come January 6, 2021. Now, that's a date that's probably not on the radar of a lot of your listeners. But that's the date on which uh, a joint section, a joint session of Congress opens and certifies electoral ballots. And typically that's a pretty ceremonial function. It happens relatively quickly. But if you have states submitting uh, competing electoral ballots, then suddenly you're looking at the potential of absolute stalemate within Congress itself. It's a frightening picture of uh 
uh, a lack of equipped, uh, the nature of how lack of uh, equipped our legal and constitutional systems are perhaps to deal with an electoral crisis. And it prompts me to ask you uh, if the guardrails would perhaps be only, as you suggest, uh, Republican lawmakers having to come aboard or having to concede in some way. Yeah, I, I think that's one thing. So because uh, what we're kind of imagining right now, Michael, is if you do get these competing certificates uh, coming from the states, uh, ultimately Congress again in early January would have to decide which certificate to recognize. Now, one possibly hopeful outcome is um, if the Senate is captured by the Democrats and if the uh, Democrats continue to hold onto the House, then our electoral uh, stalemate perhaps could be averted. Because one thing we need to bear in mind is the Congress that will be opening and certifying these electoral certificates on January 6th, it's not the Congress that we have now. It is the Congress that will also be voted in on, uh, on November 3rd. And uh, they'll be sworn in just three days prior to the um, joint session. They'll be sworn in on January 3rd. Uh, 2021. And uh, so if Democrats capture the Senate, then I think Trump's uh, attempt to play constitutional brinkmanship will be um, limited. But if they don't capture the Senate and the Senate remains in Republican hands, then we really could have a situation in which the Republican Senate recognizes the certificates from the state legislatures of the swing states, recognizing Trump as the winner and the Democrats in the House recognizing the certificates that award those swing states electoral votes to Biden. And then we're in a real kind of nightmare uh, situation. We're in what you call the Chernobyl situation. We're talking again about the possibility of President Trump rejecting electoral defeat in 2020 with Lawrence Douglas, and his book is called Willie Go, President Trump and the Looming Election Meltdown in 2020. I think it was Marsha Gessen who pointed out that um, writing about your book uh, in The New Yorker, that uh, there is a sense that if Trump really was the authoritarian powerful figure that he wants to be or that he aspires to be, he would have corrupted the process so much that the chances of his losing would have been almost eliminated. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the things I try to argue in the book is that I think there's no doubt that Trump uh, is a, has you know, authoritarian instincts uh, at the same time, I, I call him uh, a weak authoritarian. And by weak authoritarian, uh, again, it has nothing to do about his impulses, which I think are pretty profoundly authoritarian. But I think it recognizes the fact that, um, you know, we still do have some pretty durable um, institutions that are capable of opposing him. And one other thing that's kind of a real unusual feature of the Trump presidency is typically it's the case that uh, authoritarians try to... Um, court very good relations with the intelligence communities within authoritarian states. Uh, Trump, as we all know, has really alienated the uh, intelligence uh, agencies within uh, the country. And he arguably has alienated also senior leadership within the military itself. Uh, so that kind of makes him somewhat of a, a weak authoritarian. And uh, so that's why I, would, I, I, I characterize him as such. Yeah, but what about, uh, and I don't want to get too paranoid here, but it's hard sometimes not to picture this in a paranoid view. Uh, what about federal agents, uh, or excuse me, federal officers, kind of paramilitary officers going into the cities uh, that are run by Democrats? Uh, 
Many think that this is uh, perhaps moving us toward the brink of what you just described as a, a serious kind of more profound authoritarianism. Well, I, I, I agree completely. I mean, I think there's something that heinous about what we find uh, unfolding in uh, Portland. Uh, it's heinous at the same time that it's not entirely um, unpredictable, uh, you know, not to have been foreseen. I mean, this is a president who's, who's really governed through a politics of uh, division. And, uh, and he thrives on chaos, he thrives on disorder. I don't think these uh, federal agents are being deployed for the purposes of bringing order. I think they're being deployed for the purposes of triggering disorder and uh, creating even greater disorder. And that's what uh, his uh, leadership um, style thrives upon. And maybe I should add to that, it's not simply a politics of division right now, it's also a politics of diversion because I think this uh, heavy handed use of federal force is also trying to disguise the incredibly anemic and epic failure to marshal a federal response in, um, uh, in response to this uh, pandemic, which is ravaging our country. Again, our guest is Lawrence Douglas. He's professor of law at Amherst and author of a new book called Willie Go, President Trump and the Looming Election Meltdown in 2020. I want to invite your participation in this conversation. If you have questions or if you have comments for Professor Douglas or something you'd like to add to the conversation, please feel free to be a part of it. And how do you think President Trump will handle the November election results? You can give us a call right now and let us know your thoughts. The call number is 866-733-6786. That number again, toll free, 866-733-6786. You can also, of course, get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook, and we're at KQED Forum or email questions to forum at kqed.org. Let me read some emails that are coming in. Beth writes, the media as a whole got the 2016 election wrong and Trump won. They actually became the vindictive media and set out to make sure he failed. What if the media is wrong again and Trump is reelected? Uh, this is not uh, under the aegis of your book necessarily. <laughs> you want to comment though on that? Lawrence? Well, I, I suppose, you know, um, since we're looking at catastrophe scenarios, Michael, I mean, certainly it would be a catastrophe if he simply were reelected. Now, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not unthinkable, even though I think it is fair to say that he is uh, in a very weakened state right now. Um, you know, when I actually started writing the book and I, you know, the impulse to write the book actually was from a couple of years back. And uh, at the time it, you know, it was not inconceivable that he would actually uh, win um, uh, in 2020 and win by some sizable margin. And I was actually just trying to almost game out scenarios in which things could uh, go sideways. But now he is a really weakened uh, candidate. And, um, and again, is it unthinkable that he will uh, triumph? No, it's not unthinkable. It's also not unthinkable that he could win through various ways of, you know, various techniques of voter suppression, which I should add, have uh, really kind of emerged as a staple of Republican politics over the last uh, couple of decades. And also, let's not forget the warning that Robert Mueller gave about Russian interference, or for that matter, Chinese or Iranian interference in our elections, which has to be taken very seriously. I wonder if you have any thoughts about the Transition Integrity Project, which has a number of former governors and former cabinet secretaries. They're trying to essentially prepare prophylactically for what we're talking about here. Yeah, actually, there are, there are a number of organizations out there which are trying to do so, and I think that's an absolutely critical thing. I think it's, for example, I think it's incredibly important to have uh, leading Republican voices um, who would be uh, willing, you know, intrepid enough to actually uh, put a, a stop to Trump uh, should he try to engage in acts of, you know, constitutional brinkmanship 
uh, unfortunately, we've seen that within Republican lawmakers, we can't really expect a whole lot of uh, opposition from them. Um, it is, you know, it's, it's worth bearing in mind that in the impeachment proceeding, the only a senator who voted for removal was Mitt Romney. And as recently as eight years ago, uh, Mitt Romney was the standard bearer of the Republican party. He was their nominee. And it's incredible to think that the standard bearer of the party has now, uh, is now basically a pariah with his own party. It really kind of tells us a lot about the deformation of Republican par uh, politics over the last seven, uh, several years. I'm sorry. No, finish your thought, please. No, I was just going to say, but I do think the efforts that you describe, the efforts that uh, actually they are bipartisan efforts uh, in order to prepare the nation for a uh, contested and, uh, and you know, unusual and, and potentially chaotic election season. I think these efforts are, are very important. I'm not sure if they ultimately would be efficacious if things uh, really play themselves out as they could. Let me get your response to a listener named Ellen who writes, I'm feeling like the emphasis on this possibility, what if he loses and he won't leave, will only embolden Trump to act out. We know he won't go down and out quietly, and all this debate is providing is fuel for his fire. Your thoughts? You know, I, I've had various people uh, write to me and talk to me about this, saying that uh, don't you fear that you're kind of um, offering him a playbook for how he could engage in electoral defiance. And uh, much as I like to flatter my uh, power as, uh, as a scholar, I, I, I don't really think of that as a worry. I think, uh, I think the most important thing is for us to be aware of how things can go uh, sideways. And I think that is necessary so that we can prepare ourselves. And I do think preparation is key to at least try to minimize the risk of the kind of, you know, electoral uh, crisis that uh, Trump could well trigger uh, this fall and winter. So, no, I, I don't think of myself as kind of offering a playbook as much as offering a, a guide to how we can prepare ourselves for an eventuality that I think Trump has prepared himself um, to, um, to engage in. I believe you also said at one point that even if he does lose in a major way or a dramatic way, uh, aside from the self-pity, uh, he'll be blaming immigrants in the deep state. Yeah, I think there's no doubt about it. I, I don't think of, I, I can't imagine a Trump conceding. And by conceding, I really mean recognizing the legitimacy of his defeat. I can't imagine him uh, calling Donald Trump, uh, calling uh, Joe Biden and saying, you fought the good fight. You won. I lost fair and square. Congratulations. Impossible to imagine him doing that. Everything we've seen about him as a politician tells us he won't do that. And again, I'm not just trying to badmouth uh, the president. I mean, we saw that uh, going all the way back to 2016 in the Iowa caucus. He loses to uh, Senator Ted Cruz from Texas the very next morning. He's out uh, tweeting. Uh, I didn't lose to, um, to Cruz. I, my uh, victory was stolen through hoax and corruption. So it's impossible to imagine him engaging in a kind of graceful act of concession. Uh, but I do think if he loses decisively, his capacity to really create a deeper crisis in the country will be limited, which again, not to say that he's not gonna blame uh, corruption, fraud, and not to say that uh, we couldn't see certain amount of civil unrest as his diehard supporters take to the streets. But his capacity to really trigger a meltdown 
in a circumstance in which he loses very decisively, I think that will be limited. Well, when you talk about his main supporters, Lindsey Graham comes to mind, uh, now his golfing buddy, formerly somebody who excoriated him during that campaign against Hillary Clinton. Uh, but he said, uh, call, he said if he, this uh, idea of calling uh, him as leaving if he loses is nutty stuff. I'm not worried about that. I'll get your response when we come back from a break, and I'll also get to you, our callers. Hold on. If you're on the line, we'll get to as many of you as we can, and please feel free to join us toll-free at 866-733-6786, or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. You're listening to Forum on KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking this hour about the possibility of President Trump actually rejecting electoral defeat in 2020 with Lawrence Douglas, who's professor of law at Amherst College and author of Willie Go, President Trump and the Looming Election Meltdown in 2020. Anxious to get to our callers and our emailers here, but I'd asked you before the break about uh, Lindsey Graham Center, Lindsey Graham's statement that this is a nutty idea and it's not even in any way, shape or form plausible that President well, Trump well, would not go. Yeah, I'm sorry, Michael. You know, one thing I do want to emphasize is, you know, uh, my book is not about, uh, it's not kind of a sequel to Seven Days in May. I mean, I, I'm not necessarily imagining come January 20th, uh, 2021, that Trump is going to be uh, barricading himself in the Oval Office, uh, surrounded by a phalanx of, you know, rogue Secret Service agents, and he's going to need to be, you know, frog marched out of the White House by uh, the military. Uh, that, that isn't the scenario that I'm necessarily imagining. The scenario I'm, I'm imagining is the incredible damage he could do to our country between November 3rd and January 20th. And uh, if Lindsey Graham thinks that Trump um, is going to gracefully concede if he loses, then I suggest that Graham familiarize himself with uh, what Trump has said to uh, Chris Wallace and that he's repeated on many occasions. So. Uh, I think it's Lindsey Graham who uh, actually needs to look at the record a little bit more carefully. And, you know, he is uh, unfortunately one of the prime examples of someone who seemed to be a never Trumper and um, has kind of like fallen in lockstep uh, with this uh, president who has, uh, you know, run down our system of constitutional democracy in such dramatic fashion. Let me bring in our callers. And Chuck, we begin with you. Thank you for waiting. You're on the air. Good morning. Yes, uh, my question relates to, or perhaps a comment, uh, relates to President Nixon when he was facing uh, the likelihood, perhaps certainty, of being impeached, and the responsible uh, senators uh, from his, from the GOP, uh, primarily I guess Goldwater, uh, went over and told him that they were not going to support him, and causing him to realize that. Uh, he had no chance and resigned. And I'm just wondering if uh, Professor Douglas thinks that there's enough uh, spine in the Republican uh, leadership uh, to do something like that if it appeared that Trump was going to try to contest the election. It's a political question, but you want to answer, Lawrence Douglas? Yes, absolutely, I do. Because I do think a, a lot of, again, has to turn, I think it turns on the margin of victory or defeat. Uh, because I, I, if Trump loses decisively and he continues to insist that uh, the election was stolen from, I do think that people like Mitch McConnell 
will come out and say, at least it is certainly my hope, and it's actually, I think it's not uh, impossible to imagine that Mitch McConnell and other Republicans would say, uh, sorry, it's time to uh, hear the music uh, you have lost, and uh, we need to recognize Joe Biden as our next president. Uh, but if, again, if the election turns on, uh, on a close outcome in these uh, swing states, in which Trump could, for example, uh, if you don't mind, let me just play this out for a moment, because you could imagine that in these swing states on November 3rd, Trump could, Trump could actually enjoy a, a slim lead. And he could enjoy a slim lead because hundreds of thousands of these mail-in ballots, which typically break Democratic, will not have been counted yet. And you could imagine him uh, insisting that on the, on the basis of his slim lead of November 3rd, that he has won re-election. Uh, you could imagine also that as the uh, mail-in ballots are counted in the days, even weeks after November 3rd, that suddenly it seems that Biden has captured these swing states. And yet you could also imagine Republican lawmakers within those states. After all, uh, rep um, Republican lawmakers control the state legislatures in Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania and Michigan, you could imagine them supporting Trump and saying, yes, uh, we recognize him having won as a result of the November 3rd outcome. You could imagine the Democratic governor saying, no, we're not going to uh, have that record. We're not going to recognize Trump as having won our states. Uh, and that really creates a, a, a very um, dangerous situation. And so I agree with your caller that if he loses decisively, then I think the Republicans will urge him to step aside. Uh, but if there is political uh, mileage to be um, won by actually supporting Trump in his challenge to, let's say, the uh, mail-in ballots, then I think you'll find lawmakers uh, on the Republican side um, supporting him. Well, there's another dimension to this uh, that calls uh, to my mind, and that is uh, when the caller mentions Nixon, can't help thinking that um, President Trump has a reason for not wanting to leave. He would have to face justice. Uh, I mean, there could be a pardon like there was for, uh, given by Gerald Ford to, to President Nixon by uh, Vice President Pence, but not in terms of the Southern District of New York and his uh, desire to have uh, Jeffrey Berman removed there or for that matter, his removal of inspectors general and everything is a way, it seems to me, of his building up his own guardrails. Yes, yeah, so, no, I, I, I agree with that. Um, it's hard to say exactly. I mean, I'm sure there are many reasons why he wants to be a reelected president, but um, perhaps not least of which is the desire to uh, avoid legal exposure. And it does seem to be the case that if, for or, example- Excuse me, were, to, to keep yeah. immunity, really, uh, at least- Yes, yes. Yeah. Right, exactly. Right, to maintain immunity. And, and again, by legal exposure, I, I even mean from like uh, the criminal legal process. And uh, which again, a, a pardon would, um, would exempt him from any type of uh, charges arising from federal crimes, but would still leave him obviously vulnerable to uh, state um, indictment. Yeah, and we'll bring another caller on. Paul, join us. You're on. Thank you. Uh, I... I'm wondering if the professor believes that the scenarios that he's been describing are part and parcel of the strategy that's been emanating from Moscow for years to lead to division 
and then to exactly the kind of uh, situation that he's describing. Well, the professor uses a Chernobyl metaphor. Um, uh, can you divine something along those lines, Lawrence Douglas, about well, Russian interference? Because there certainly has been Russian interference in our elections. Yeah, there certainly has been uh, Russian interference. And again, I, d I don't think that um, the Russians are necessarily, let's, I think I would just put leave it at this, that obviously uh, there are many foreign adversaries uh, perhaps uh, that would benefit from uh, chaos in the United States. I mean, we saw Russia uh, meddling in our election in 2016. They did it uh, for the benefit of Trump. I mean, that's something that has been proven through our own intelligence agencies uh, ad nauseum. Uh, we saw that in his testimony on Capitol Hill, we saw Robert Mueller uh, reminding lawmakers that the Russians are probably actively trying to uh, repeat things uh, as Mueller was testifying. Um, so yes, I think it is very much in their interest to uh, sow chaos. It's probably in the interest as well of China and uh, Iran to do the same thing. Uh, but unfortunately, we have someone in the White House who instead of you know, pushing back against that, uh, he's willing to entertain conspiracy theories that are actually produced by the Russian intelligence service itself. Um, and uh, the other thing, the last thing I should maybe mention, Michael, is you know this kind of uh, Chernobyl-like um, meltdown that I say our system could be vulnerable to. Um, it's not simply a professor with nothing better to do to imagine, you know, imagining these twilight uh, twilight zone uh, scenarios. Um, this happened in 1876. We had exactly this type of uh, electoral meltdown in 1876, and it almost tore the nation apart. So again, it's not entirely speculative that our system could be vulnerable to this type of meltdown. And since you mentioned 1876, there was also a lot of uh, widespread voter fraud then and, and certainly violent intimidations as well. Uh, let me go to some comments that are coming in. Ellen writes, I'm feeling like the emphasis on this possibility. What? I'm sorry, this is Todd who writes, I thought of the description of Trump playing football on a basketball court. Trump's in the wrong game and needs to be thrown out as soon as possible. The referees have failed us so far. His own party has failed. Now America's enemies are now winning. Tara writes, is there not a different Republican candidate the Republican National Party can nominate? How can so many intelligent people continue to support Trump on this level? And a question from a listener named Scott. If two Republican governors, Abbott in Texas and DeSantis in Florida, simply refuse to certify Biden electors, it would be almost impossible for Biden to get 270 votes. And that would mean the election would go to the House, where the arcane rules for contingent elections would mean Trump would win. He's got that right, doesn't he, Professor Douglas? Um, not necessarily. I mean, well, um, in terms of the House having to decide, they are pretty yes, arcane well, well, rules. It, well, it wouldn't again, matter if it was a Democratic House, I don't think, would it? Well, it, 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 it depends a little bit about the composition of the House. Remember, it's not the present House uh, that would be deciding an election in which no uh, candidate received a majority of electoral college votes. Again, it would be the House that's voting in on November 3rd itself. So, uh, and this is, again, it's a little bit of a constitutional um, uh, trivia, but it's actually not necessarily trivial because it really could um, have a very dramatic uh, bearing on the outcome of what happens um, in the coming uh, months. Um, if no one receives a electoral majority, then it becomes the House of Representatives that elects the president. Now you might think, oh, well, Biden's going to win because uh, Biden 
um, because the Democrats have 235 seats in the uh, House against the Republicans 199. I think there's uh, one present vacancy. But of course, according to the Constitution, it's not each member of the House that gets to vote. It's each House delegation gets a single vote. So California gets one vote and Wyoming gets one vote. And if you look at the present composition of the House by delegation, uh, then you see that the Republicans control 26 uh, to 23 to one that is, um, that is evenly split. So then again, you might say, oh, well, Trump is gonna be reelected, uh, re-elected. But here again, I point out, it's not the present House that makes that determination. And you could easily imagine just a, a handful of seats uh, being captured by the Democrats and suddenly the delegations would be split 25 to 25. And if you have that situation, then no one gets elected president. Oh, here's a tweet from Luke who writes, Electoral College, purging voters from the electoral roll, the debate commission, superdelegates. What scares me is the current electoral system. I see very little daylight between the two parties. And uh, here's John who says, I don't think there's any chance that Mitch McConnell will do the right thing if Trump loses and attempts to contest the election. Let me bring another caller on here. And uh, first, some pushback. Fred Kaplan, writing in Slate, argues that Trump would not get away with not leaving if he tries. Let me just read this to you, Professor Douglas. Uh, on the dot of noon, January 20th, 2021, the nuclear codes, which currently allow Trump to order and authenticate a nuclear attack, expire. If Trump and whatever lackeys stay with him prevent the officer from leaving, another officer holding a backup football would join Biden at the inauguration ceremony. By the same token, the entire U.S. military establishment will pivot away from ex-President Trump and salute President Biden. If Trump orders the military to do anything, they will refuse his order. So again, Michael, I, I, I do want to emphasize that if, if Biden has been properly inaugurated, if he wins decisively, then I, the, the kind of uh, situation that Fred Kaplan describes, I, I agree with it. I don't think there will be, you know, I, I don't imagine Trump needing to be frog marched out of the White House by members of the military. And if it came to that, they would do it. Uh, but the, the kind of things that, that I really worry about is that we don't have a clear outcome. That again, that the system uh, fails to provide a uh, clear result. And as a result of that, uh, we have the weeks going by um, from November 3rd through December, through January, in which we simply don't know who the president is. And uh, as you pointed out early on, uh, if we really don't know, then according to the Presidential Succession Act of 1947, uh, Nancy Pelosi would be sworn in on uh, January 20th. But again, we have to think about that against the backdrop of Trump continuing to insist that uh, he has in fact been reelected, that the Democrats are simply trying to, uh, in a sense, almost engage in a coup. And, uh, and if we imagine Republican lawmakers supporting him, again, if the outcome turns on kind of like these slim margins in swing states, then I could really imagine a, a very, uh, yeah, a very dangerous situation confronting the nation. What about the power that's vested in him as commander in chief, though? Gary Wills has written a whole book on this, and, you know, it's a frightful, uh, extraordinary amount of power that he has as commander in chief of the military. Absolutely. And he'll continue to have that power. We can all agree on the following. 
he will continue to have that power from November 3rd until January 20th. And we've already seen on the streets of Portland this willingness to uh, deploy uh, federal agents. Uh, we also saw that uh, back at the time that he staged his photo op uh, in Washington, D.C., he was willing to invoke the Insurrection Act of 1807, which would have permitted the uh, mobilization of federal troops on the streets of uh, our cities. And at the time, it was only Attorney General Barr and uh, Defense Secretary Mark Esper who uh, talked him down from doing that. So yes, I mean, he presides over a tremendous amount of power that he could abuse in particular between November 3rd and January 20th. And that's why I really think that, and this is why in my book, I really focus on those days as really being the critical days uh, in our nation's history, less so what happens uh, after January 20th. The book again is, Will He Go? President Trump and the Looming Election Meltdown in 2020. Let's bring Jim on here. Jim, welcome. You're on the air. Uh, yes, uh, thank you for taking me. I'm a registered Republican, but a disabled veteran with uh, ALS. And uh, uh, something that's come up while you were uh, talking and I was on hold reminds me of the uh, uh, dealings of the Joint Chiefs of Staff with Nixon uh, and selecting uh, between the 101st and the 82nd Airborne, which is a horrible contingency. But uh, uh, what I originally came on to say was, if the Electoral College is certified and Mitch McConnell agrees with it, why wouldn't he order the sergeant of arms of this Senate and the uh, uh, federal police to go physically throw him out of the White House? Jim, thank you for that question. Let me go right to Professor Douglas, Lawrence Douglas. So again, uh, Jim, I'm very sorry to hear about the uh, ALS diagnosis. And, and thank you for um, your service, Jim, by the way. I'm sorry. Yes, yes. And thank you for your service. Um, the... Uh, uh, I, I, again, um, you know, we're, we're looking at maybe different kinds of scenarios. So is there a scenario in which I would think that Mitch McConnell would uh, tell uh, Trump to, uh, to listen to the music and to say, look, you've lost and you have to leave? Yes. Uh, as I said before, I think in a decisive electoral defeat, and again, by a decisive electoral defeat, we have to emphasize that we're not talking about the popular vote. Uh, unfortunately, the way we elect a president, the popular vote is not dispositive. It really, Trump would have to lose decisively in the Electoral College and he would have to lose decisively in the swing states. But if he doesn't, again, if he doesn't, and we have that kind of scenario in which uh, we have these you know, competing electoral certificates being submitted by Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, and that you have a divided um, Congress in January 2020 opening certificates, then I could imagine, again, Mitch McConnell uh, siding with the president. And, uh, you know, we've, we've already seen that the president has engaged in these preemptive strikes on mail-in ballots. And I think that's an important thing to, to bear in mind, that he's already prepped his followers to discredit any results that turn on the influx of mail-in ballots. Um, we could imagine that uh, the Republican lawmakers are, are going to uh, support him. 
And if you want to join us in the time remaining, the number to call is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Uh, let me go to some more emails here. Uh, uh, Gary writes, the most serious danger is what Trump will do before the election and create the result he craves, voter suppression, other fraudulent moves regarding voter count, and who knows what else. And as far as Mitch McConnell, Sarah writes, is there a chance that Mitch McConnell and other Republican leadership are just sick of Trump behind the scenes and would welcome an out even if the defeat is narrow? They may be sick, but uh, they're still scared of him, I think. Uh, it's safe to say. Um, Rodolfo says, what specific actions can be taken between now and the day of the election by elected officials and by the public to ensure a big Democratic victory? You want to answer that, Lawrence Douglas? Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And maybe there are, maybe there are three things I would emphasize. First of all, I do think it's important for the uh, Democrats to make sure that our polling places are being um, carefully monitored. Uh, because I do worry, and this kind of connects to an earlier comment uh, that one of your um, listeners submitted, that I, I do worry about um, the president uh, of deploying, let's say, ICE agents to neighborhoods with uh, heavy uh, Latinx heritage for the purposes of trying to uh, intimidate voters. So I do think it's important for Democrats to get out in numbers to make sure that our polling places are being properly um, uh are being uh, properly safeguarded so that people can vote in a open and unintimidated fashion. The second thing I think is important, and it gets, goes to the, this whole attack that Trump has um, engaged on uh, that he's directed against mail-in ballots. There's no doubt that we're going to be seeing, you know, tens of millions of Americans voting by mail-in ballot uh, come this fall. And I should also mention that mail-in ballots are nothing new. Uh, you know, 25 million Americans voted by mail-in or absentee ballots in 2016. That includes President see, Trump, by the way. Yes, exactly. Includes Trump himself, and um, and so there's nothing kind of new about this. This is not this is not an exotic new form of voting, but it is the case that people who are unwilling to expose themselves to the health risks of voting in person are going to uh, be voting by mail-in ballot. And one thing I think is important for us to do is to get those mail-in ballots early to submit them early because one thing that was that the republicans no doubt are going to do is they will challenge mail-in ballots that are submitted in the last moment states have all sorts of different laws as to when ballots have to be um, have to arrive by for the purposes of counting and if uh these uh mail-in ballots all arrive uh, at the last moment, then that becomes a script for the president and for his uh, Republican supporters to challenge these uh, mail-in ballots and arguably to disqualify them. And here's Maybe Deidre the, joining us. Oh, next. yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm yeah, sorry. Can, I say, can I just yeah, say yeah. one other thing? Please. Yeah, I'm again, sorry. this might be kind of uh, uh, obvious point, but I think one of the things that we also need to bear in mind is I think on November 3rd, we often watch election results uh, as if we're watching the Kentucky Derby. We kind of expect to uh, find out who the winner was uh, by the time that we go to sleep on November 3rd. And given the, um, the fact that we're going to have so many people casting mail-in ballots, I think we need to understand that uh, we're unlikely to know who won the election uh, on November 3rd, and that it's possible that Trump could even have a lead in these swing states, but we're likely to see that lead erode because it's going to be in heavily Democratic 
densely populated urban areas in which people are going to be relying most heavily on mail-in ballots. Lawrence Douglas, again, is author of Willie Go, President Trump and the Looming Election Meltdown in 2020, and Deidre joins us. Deidre, welcome. Hi, hi, Professor Lawrence. Thanks so much for uh, writing this, because I know it's something that's certainly been on my mind. Um, I just want to clarify, because I think perhaps you just asked, answered this question, but as a, as a voter, um, what what would you suggest that we do? What's some action that we can take, it, in particular, as I think and I'm alarmed about the time between November and January? That just seems so so scary. Well, I guess, I, again, I would say two things. One, if you're voting in person, um, obviously you want to do that uh, through safe practices. And also you want to make sure that, uh, you know, you have a right to vote as a registered voter and uh, don't let yourself be uh, intimidated. And it might be the case that uh, you need to get online very, very early. We saw in the Wisconsin primary, we saw what voting in person in a time of pandemic is like in Milwaukee. 180 polling places were slated to be open. In fact, only five were uh, in light of the pandemic. And again, if you're voting by uh, mail, I suggest that, um, that you submit your ballot early. Do not wait to the last moment because then you're just kind of playing into the hands of Republicans who will seek to disqualify those votes as having failed to be submitted in a timely fashion. Let me thank Deidre for her call and go right to another caller. That's Tom in San Anselmo. Tom, join us. Hi. Yeah, I'm very concerned about the possibility that this might happen. And uh, not only the fact that it might happen, but the results in terms of some of these fanatical white supremacist groups that are devoted to Trump and any kind of implication that there might be a, uh, a, you know, kind of uh, uh, unsureness about the outcome, what kind of violence might erupt from this. That's a real danger that a number of people have pointed out. In fact, most recently, Noam Chomsky on Amy Goodman. Do you have any thoughts on this, Lawrence Douglas? I, I think I share these concerns. I mean, we, um, we live, yeah, I, sh I share the concerns. And, uh, and I, I think given the kind of dog whistle politics that uh, Trump engages in, um, I could imagine him you know, sending out signals which his uh, supporters um, take as a um, as a license to you know take things into their own hands. I mean, we saw uh, the president willing to try to extract political points against Democratic governors by urging um, you know people within Wisconsin and Michigan to liberate their state. And we saw how people answered that call. We had these incredibly disturbing images of people with automatic weapons, not simply protesting outside of the state house, but inside the state house itself. And uh, the possibility for violence, I, I, I think, is, is real and, and should disturb us all. Let me get your response, Lawrence Douglas, to a question that Trish raises. She says, who is providing Trump with all the information about the unusual powers he has been invoking and may continue to invoke? We know he does not read. He knows nearly nothing about constitutional provisions. So somebody is feeding this to him. Is it Barr? Um, well, um, I, you know, I do think that, you know, we, as dysfunctional as the, this White House has been, um, we shouldn't, um, 
overlook the fact that there are many people, you know, in the West Wing, there are many people uh, in the White House. He has lots of lawyers, he has uh, lots of advisors, even if he doesn't usually take their counsel. Uh, they're well aware of things like uh, what the Insurrection Act uh, says, um, and that they're well aware of the kind of emergency powers that the, the president has. Um, obviously, we've seen in the person of William Barr, uh, a head of the Department of Justice who is willing to act as the president's sword and shield. And that is, I would say, a disturbing thing. We'll have to leave it there. Lawrence Douglas, good to have you with us. I appreciate you being with us on Forum this morning. Thank you. It was really my pleasure to be with you, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. That's Lawrence Douglas. He's Professor Lord Amherst. And a book, his book, again, is Will He Go? President Trump and the Looming Election Meltdown in 2020. Thank you for being with us this hour of Forum. Stay tuned for another hour. Amina, host, uh, Amina Kim will be the host. And for all of us at KQED, I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.